So what do Alfred Hitchcock, George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg all have in common? You probably know the answer, some of you at least. Each of them have been in one of their own films, at least one of their own films that they have directed. They make what's called a cameo appearance. And a cameo appearance just simply means that they show up uh, briefly and then they're not in it anymore and it doesn't impact the plot. It's just kind of a novelty. Hey, I think that was George Lucas. Do you, was that George Lucas? I think that's George Lucas. What do you think? Would you just be quiet, watch the film? Who cares, right? Do you love it when people irritate you while you're trying to watch a movie and ask you all kinds of questions? I'm guilty of that. When Jesus shows up, though, it's not a cameo experience. He doesn't show up just to be seen and then disappear. Actually, when he shows up, he's the star of the movie, so to speak. He is the hero of God's story. It's really all about him and how he rescues you and me from evil and sin and death and gives us great hope and eternal life. Someone might ask, well, how does he rescue us? And that's what I want to talk about in this last message of our long story short. And I suspect, not in this service, but maybe in another service, someone might be thinking to himself, but I already know how he does it. That's like Sunday School 101. And I suffered through daylight savings time just to come and hear something I've heard a hundred times and could actually tell myself, can I be excused right now? Well, granted, there are probably many of you who could kind of outline how Jesus rescues us, but the reality is you really don't know how he rescues us if you feel that way. Because to really understand how he rescues us is something that you just never get over. It's kind of like a beautiful sunset. I love beautiful sunsets. And I never tire them. I could go out and watch one every night. Or it's like your favorite song that you keep on your playlist, and you play it often because it's your song, right? Or your favorite movie that you have kept and you kind of watch now and then because, well, it's your favorite movie. There's just something about it that resonates with you. Or it's like me looking at my grandkids' pictures yesterday. I found some pictures I hadn't seen for a while, and I just enjoyed just broke out a huge smile on my face as I looked at them when they were little. Never get tired of that. Never get tired of that. How can we ever get tired of what Jesus has done for us? So I think you might be surprised today, and I hope you'll be enthralled by the story as we bring our series to a close the way we're going to do that is we're going to put up this poster that you can download on thebibleproject.com. How many of you have been looking at that site? It's very fun, isn't it? It's a fascinating site. We started out our series with the Old Testament. We're going to do it again today. Just so we have continuity between the old and the new. They go together. And we said that the Old Testament had three divisions to it. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim kind of Hebrew Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament. Today, we're going to look at three acts, the Old Testament in three different acts. In order to do that, let's start with Act 1. Now, Act 1, if you want to give it a title, is basically God and humanity, Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And we said earlier when we started our series that, you know, God's story starts out good. 
and it's human beings who ruin it. Adam and Eve, instead of trusting God and loving God and using the truth that God gave them to protect themselves and to protect all of creation, instead they listened to evil and they believed the lie. And as a result of that, we saw how everything just spiraled out of control, even ending with humanity on the plains of Babylon long after the flood, trying to build their own little kingdom, so to speak. But God gives us a hint of better things to come. Already in Genesis, he tells us that he's going to, second, he's going to send a second Adam, a new human. We know that's a ref uh, reference to Jesus coming in the flesh. And so if we go back to the beginning of the story and we kind of draw Jesus in as it were, he's much different than the old Adam. He loves the truth of God, the truth of his father. He upholds the truth even when he's tempted by the evil one like in Matthew or Luke chapter 4. And get this, that just as Adam had a wife named Eve, well, Jesus has a wife as well. You say, that sounds like heresy, Pastor Dale. can't believe you said that. Jesus has a wife. Well, he does have a wife, and the wife's name is the church. He said that so enthusiastically. The church, right? The bride of Christ. Now, Adam didn't stick up for his bride, didn't defend his bride. Jesus not only sticks up for his bride, but Jesus lays his life down for his bride. And rather than spiraling down into some kind of human kingdom, he lifts us up to the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is what he's all about. And that was, that was Act 1. Now, let's talk a little bit about Act 2. Genesis chapter 12, through about 2 Kings in our Bible, is a story about God and Israel. God kind of starts all over again, and he chooses this guy named Abram, who's an idolater. He says, leave your idols behind and the place where you live behind, and follow me. I'm going to take you to a brand new land. I'm going to do something special through you. God makes a covenant with Abraham and his wife, Sarah. She was older and had no children, was barren, didn't look like she'd ever have children. But God said, I'm going to give you a child, and through your family, Abraham, I'm going to multiply your family like the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you some land, and through your family is going to come a blessing to the whole world, a reference to Jesus who would come through the lineage of Abraham and who would indeed cause Israel to be a blessing to the whole world because he would redeem us. He would reconcile us back to God himself. But we know the story of Abraham's family. We know that it didn't take long until, well, they started to rebel against God. And while a remnant stayed faithful, many of their leaders led the people away from God and led the people into idolatry and to immorality. In fact, eventually there is this civil war that breaks out Ten northern tribes, two southern tribes. The northern tribes, they're just led by rebellious kings all day long, rebelling against God, plunging the people even into sacrificing their own children to these false gods. And God wipes them out in 722 B.C. by the power of the Assyrians. Now, the southern kingdom had some better kings that listened to God, so they lasted longer, but they did the same thing, offering their children to these horrible demonic gods. And in 586 God sends in Nebuchadnezzar and takes many of them away in 
for 70 years they're held in captivity as a result of it. And it just doesn't look like there's much hope. When will this new Adam, this new Redeemer show up? And that takes us to the third act. And the third act is entitled The Prophets and the Poets. Now the prophets come along and they tell everybody, repent and come back to God. If you don't, you're going to be judged. We already saw that in the second act, the judgment that would take place. But while the prophets are saying and warning that judgment will come, they're also telling us that there's one who will come, that that, that Messiah figure is going to show up and he is going to rescue the uh, Israel, he's going to rescue the world. And, he, and they call us to be faithful to that. In fact, they even paint a picture that someday in the future, there's actually going to be a new Jerusalem and a new creation that we all have to look forward to this. However, this one that is to come, well, he will come as a suffering servant, this king. And he will die, but somehow he will rise again and conquer death and sin for us all and everybody's wondering who this is going to be and when is this all going to happen. And suddenly, after the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, there is 400 years of what? Shh, silence, right? No prophet speaks. No second Adam, no rescuer, no redeemer. And God's people do something. They commit idolatry with the law. They commit idolatry with the law. In other words, what they do is they say, you know, the law is really our Savior. And the Messiah, well, the Messiah is going to be a political figure. What he saves us from is our enemy. So that kind of mindset changed and pervaded most of the religious thinking of that day. So now as they're looking forward to a savior, they're looking forward to a savior who's going to politically liberate them, though that isn't what Isaiah and the prophets meant or what God was promising. The law was not meant to be an idol to be worshipped. The law was meant to be an instrument to show them and us how sinful we are, how imperfect we are, and how much we need a Savior. But as I said, silence, silence. And then all of a sudden we read words like the Apostle Paul's in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, at the right time, you know, God has his own schedule. Have you noticed that? It doesn't always coincide with your schedule and mine. I wish it did. But it doesn't. But at the right time, God sent his son, born to a virgin, under the law. And he appears. Christ appears. And something unique happens. You know, in the Old Testament, we read that when God stood back and saw everything he created, that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, read it with me, it said, then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was what? That it was very good. That it was very, oops, that it was very good. Now watch what happens in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching the synagogues, announcing the what? 
the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. So we go from a good story to the good news. I told you it was going to get gooder, and it does. And the good news is all summed up in what we call the gospel. So let's put our next banner up here. And we're going to focus on this side of the banner to begin with and what we call the gospel of first books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they tell us about the coming of this messianic figure. And from, a, from the get-go, from a young age, he already begins his ministry. You know, when Jesus was born, he's born in Bethlehem. Well, who else was born in Bethlehem? David was born in Bethlehem. And Jesus is considered a king in the lineage of David. David's son, he's called in the Bible. And what's interesting is when Herod threatens the life of this newborn child, the angels warn Joseph and Mary, take him and go where? Help me out. You can talk. Go to Egypt, right? Go down to Egypt. Well, who went down to Egypt? Remember, Abraham went down to Egypt. Eventually, Jacob and his family go down to Egypt, and they fall into slavery there because they got into the idolatry of the Egyptians. But God sends Moses and leads them out of Egypt. But then he messes up in the wilderness, so Joshua is the one who actually takes him in for the conquest of the promised land. Well, Jesus is, in essence, retracing those steps because he's the perfect Abraham. He's the perfect Moses. He's the perfect Joshua. He's going to lead us out of slavery to sin and evil and death, and he's going to get victory for us. And he comes into the promised land. And he grows up and he becomes this revolutionary he grows up and he becomes this king and he talks about his kingdom. But it's a strange kingdom. And he's a strange king. Because he's poor. And he's humble and he's meek. And his kingdom isn't made up of brave soldiers and the rich and the elite and the politically correct. No, 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 no. His kingdom is made up of adulterers and adulteresses, of thieves and murderers, of the rabble of people who were on the outcasts that Abraham's powerful sons, the priests, were trying to keep out of the temple and keep out of the synagogue, who they looked down their noses at. And so in their minds, this Jesus seems to be a bit of an imposter, doesn't seem to be the Messiah that they're expecting. He's actually pointing the finger at them when he should be pointing the finger at Rome. What's going on here? But he does have some power. He does seem like he has power. He seems like a prophet, a priest, a king. I mean, he can raise the dead. He can heal people, make the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the mute to talk. I mean, what he's able to do is profound. But he's not playing the part right. Therefore, their conclusion is reached that he must be demon-possessed. Beelzebub, that's how he's doing it. And so they take him. They bring him to the Romans, and they make all kinds of accusations about him, and they put him on a cross, and they crucify him. And they mock him on the cross, and they mock him because if he's a king, he ought not be on the cross. Criminals get crucified. He must be a criminal. They're crucifying a demon. He was a mad man. Good thing we got rid of him so we can go back to normal. I wonder when the Messiah will come. And Jesus' followers, they were befuddled. They wanted a revolution. They wanted to see a king and a kingdom. They wanted to serve in his court. They had swords ready. But Jesus said, put those swords back. It's not how I do things. 
They don't know what to think. And so they run and they hide in a room and they worry that they're next. He's taken down from the cross and he's buried in the tomb. Man, the situation looks hopeless. And then on the third morning, there was this massive earthquake and the stone rolled back on the tomb and out came this beaming glory of Christ risen from the dead. He's won the battle. He's conquered the greatest enemy, which is at Rome. He's conquered the greatest enemy, which is death and sin and evil. See, I told you, you don't know the story. Because if you knew the story right now, you'd be cheering. You'd be like, yay, he won. Let's try it. Ready? He won the victory. Now, some of you are like, I hate it when preachers do that. Just hate it when they do that. Many of you are sports fans. You may be a fan of the Vikings, maybe a fan of the Twins. Got to start praying now, right? You might be a fan of the Timberwolves. What's the hockey team's name again? The Wild. That's right, the Wild, all right? I want to say the North Stars, but the Wild, all right? And when your team is out there playing and winning, you what? You cheer. You get excited. You identify them. You wear their emblems. You, so you have them tattooed on you. You're so dyed in the wool fan of the Gophers or whatever team is meaningful to you. You get excited about them. And that's great. I'm not against that. But, I mean, really, what does it mean? By the way, this weekend is the Big Ten Championship. I've got it recorded for wrestling that's my favorite sport. I'll be on the edge of my seat watching those matches, but you're into high school hockey and all that stuff. That's the way. Okay, all right. What's my point? Isn't it amazing we can get excited about that, but we can hear the story of our salvation, folks. This is, this is life and death. This is eternity. And we just go, yeah. Man, hope I get a nap in this afternoon. You know what I'm trying to say? If you know the story of salvation, if you really believe the story of salvation, there's just something about it that you just, you never get tired of it. You never get bored of it because you know it's your life. It's your breath. He rises from, from the dead. And when he rises from the dead, he tells his followers, and I am going to be with you forever now. Get out there and make everybody aware of who I am and what I've done here, near, and far. And then he, he breathes on them, it says in Luke, and they receive the Spirit. And he says, that's just a taste of what's to come. I want you guys to go in Jerusalem because something is going to happen. Wait there. And what that does is it takes us to the second part of the story, and that is the Acts of the Apostles. It really should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Apostles and all the followers. What's amazing is that as the book of Acts begins... Jesus, who said, I'm going to be with you forever, turns around and says, I'm leaving now. But you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then he ascends. What's that all about? Well, Jesus has encapsulated himself in a physical being. He can't be with them everywhere if he's one person. So he comes back to them in the Spirit as the Father came to the people in the Son. The mystery of the Trinity. And now the Holy Spirit can indwell all of us. So they're all waiting there in Jerusalem. And at Pentecost, the Spirit comes in dramatic way, in wind, in tongues of fire that settle on them. And from that moment on, when somebody accepts Christ into their life, 
the Holy Spirit automatically comes into us. Now, isn't that, when we talk about it, isn't that kind of wild? Thank you for leading that. Isn't that kind of wild? The Holy Spirit, I mean, you're an ordinary human being. Sometimes you feel sorry for yourself because you feel so ordinary. You're not a superstar. You weren't this great. You aren't this great athlete. You're not measuring up the way the world measures up things. But I'm telling you what, you're a supernatural being. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Problem is, we've all been fooled into compartmentalizing God. We live like he's way out there and I'm, I'm, I'm just here by myself. And boy, I wish you'd help me out sometimes when he's there in us. And so they go out and they begin to change the world because they form this revolutionary group. Been hearing about revolutionist political season, haven't we? Revolutions. <laughs> you are part of a revolutionary group. It's called the church, but we don't lead our revolution with guns and knives and spears and negative talk and threats. We lead the revolution with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's a revolution of love. Then what happens is we find ourselves another uh, section of this, the letter from the apostles, because all these churches are starting. And so the apostles start writing letters, and they use their letters to talk about how God set it all up in the Old Testament and what it means. They write letters about their times and the words and the meanings of Jesus. And they write letters to tell the people, listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, understand this, that just like they crucified him, they might crucify you, if not physically, verbally, and emotionally. Because not everybody likes Jesus and not everybody likes this revolution. So expect you're going to suffer in this world. Some of you, he says, they say may even die. And many of those apostles did die. So you got to take the cause serious. Jesus says, you want to save your life, you lose it. If you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you will find it or you will save it. So they're there encouraging them. Stay faithful. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't go backwards. Stay forward. Hang in there. Because the last book that they talk about is the book of Revelation. And they say, you know what? There's a day coming when God's finally going to overthrow the evil kingdom of this universe. There'll be suffering along the way. The world's going to get more evil. The system's going to be very anti-Christ. But in the end, God is going to win the battle. In the end, God is the champion. Don't worry about it. It's all going to work out. Stay faithful. God keeps his promises. He always has and he always will. It's going to be okay. Because in the end, he's going to take us back to the beginning. In the end, he's going to take us back because God doesn't save us, so we're going to spend eternity in heaven with him playing harps and floating on clouds. Yes, I see heaven almost like a changing room where when Christ does return again, we return with him, and as he always intended, we will rule with him here on this earth. And I believe throughout the universe the way God always intended. And what's so awesome is then God makes his home with us here on this earth. 
And it's a promise that we all have to look forward to. You say, well, where is he? Remember they were asking that? They've been asking that for a long time. Where is he? He'll show up when he's ready to show up because he's willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. But when he shows up, listen to this. I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 21 and 22, our future, your future. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Won't that be nice? For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And now for the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the, and the uh, leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him. They'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will get them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. Now, I know the symbolism in some of that, and I can't explain it all and what it all means, but I want to tell you something. It, it doesn't come close to what it's actually going to be like because the human vocabulary cannot capture the beauty of what is waiting for us in this new dimension that God has in store for us. And so that's the long story short. That's Genesis through Revelation. And it's a story you've got to keep close to your heart in this world that we live in. Don't believe the false narrative of this world. Don't believe the false narrative of the enemy. It has not produced anything good. It hasn't produced anything that we can look at and say, that is salvation. But God's truth, God's word, it's what produces hope. It's what gives us joy. It's what promises us forgiveness. It's a hope worth believing in. Would you bow your heads with me, please? You know, as we've been talking about this story. Do you see yourself in the story? Do you see yourself as part of that story? Jesus came just for you that if you're the only person on earth, he would have still done it. And if you are not sure about your relationship with God, or you feel like you've been off the journey, like Aaron in his story, I would like to encourage you at the end of our service to pick up what we call our faith starter kit you want to come up to the front or one of our pastors will have it here or you can go to the welcome center at door number one they've got them there pastor brian will be back there and this kit just helps you think about your journey and it's got some neat tools in there to kind of get you moving on that journey father right now we humble ourselves before you and 
Father, we want to come into a time of honoring your son and remembering what he did for us. It seems so appropriate having rehearsed the story of salvation. Lord, I want to thank you so much for these beautiful symbols, this time of remembrance. All that you've done to put us in the story with you. I thank you for the bread that represents your body that was given for us, that hung on that cross in our stead. And I thank you for this juice that reminds us of the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And we might know the forgiveness of our sins. We praise you for your goodness to us, Lord. We praise you for your grace. In these moments, Lord, as we will begin partaking, I pray, O oh God, that we would do so with a deep sense of thanksgiving in our lives. I pray that we'll do so with a sense that I'm part of the story. In Jesus' name, amen.